A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. The Lord replied, If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Who among you would say to your servant who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, Come here immediately and take your place at table? Would he not rather say to him, Prepare something for me to eat. Put on your apron and wait and wait on me while I eat and drink. You may eat and drink when I am finished. Is he grateful to that servant because he did what was commanded? So should it be with you. When you have done all you have been commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what we were obliged to do. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning. Praise the Lord. In the name of Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I was saying it's been a very, very busy weekend at the parish, and for the life of our parish, a, a very joyful time. On Friday night, I was invited by Portola High School to, to judge the class floats in their homecoming parade. It was great. When they asked me to go, I said, I'm amazing at judging people. That's, <laughs> I love it. So of course I'll go up there. And it was amazing. Uh, the sophomore class, by the way, Portola, they won the, the float uh, design there, not because they had the best float but because they had the best bribe. So it was amazing, you know. So, uh, so the sophomore class wheeled the, the wheels there. So it was amazing. But also, amazing for our parish, one of our parishioners was elected homecoming queen, Emily Sheridan. So now we can bask in the presence of royalty, huh? So when you see Emily, congratulate her. Uh, they mostly come to go to Mass in Portola, but you know the Sheridans, so, so, so it's always amazing. But to be honest, it was traumatic to go back to homecoming. Cause, uh, I don't know about you, but I got bad memories of homecoming when I was in high school. A lot of pressure. A lot of pressure on kids. Homecoming, you got to look good, you got to be popular, you got to get that date, you got to... All the, I was traumatized by it. But praise God, it was a good day. And then on Saturday, we had a baptism here. Uh, the Manzo family. Edwin, little Edwin there. The, it was beautiful to have a, another... Baptized Catholic, a new Christian was born that day, so it was a beautiful time for the family. And then, of course, the Rousins, we had a huge wedding in Portola. Many of you were there. It was a beautiful day. I don't know about you, but I love, love weddings. It was amazing. So as we began, of course, the beginning of Mass, we're seated up front. Again, remember, as priests, I have the best seat in the house because I'm standing next to the groom, especially in the beginning. And so the procession is... Is underway, and Derek, the, the groom, and Annie, 
of course, about to wed. But as, as Derek was waiting for Annie up front and is looking down, the music changes, doors fling open, and here comes beautifully Annie, of course, in her white dress, coming down. You should have seen Derek's face. His bottom lip was quivering. Was quivering. And I whispered to him, Get yourself together, man. <laughs> you're, behold your bride. Your bride cometh. Get yourself together. Stop crying. So it was a, but it was a beautiful thing. Because it's a pivotal moment, isn't it? And then my favorite part of, of any, any wedding rite is, of course, that moment when they come together and they exchange their vows. And you know them well. You've heard of the hundreds of times we've been to weddings when they come and, they, and they're facing each other faces are literally this far apart and the groom goes first I Derek take you Annie to be my wife I promise to be true to you in good times and in bad in sickness and in health And then Annie will repeat it. I, Annie, will take you. Derek, same thing, she repeats. I promise to be true to you in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health. Notice those words. Those words are made in utter faith, isn't it? Made in utter faith. Because Annie and Derek have no idea what the future will hold. No idea. But what Derek just said to Annie, he says, no matter what happens, I will be here for you. No matter what happens. And that's made in utter faith, isn't it? And then Annie will say the same thing. No matter what the future unfolds, before us, I am your wife, and I will be here no matter what happens. Because notice that when they made those vows, it's easy to say it in that context. They're all beautiful, they're all in their dresses, in their beautiful suits, they're surrounded by their family and friends, everyone's happy. But as we all know, life is like an untamed lion, isn't it? One moment, calm, demure, and all of a sudden, ferocious and vicious. Could overwhelm us. In the gospel today, you see why the apostles say, Jesus, increase our faith. See, that word faith here in the original Greek is pistos. You can translate that to mean also trust. So when they cry out, Jesus, increase our trust in you. Why? Because suffering will hit every single one of us. Suffering will hit us because just as Derek and Annie made those vows now, it will take utter trust in each other to endure when life gets hard. And it is a faith and trust founded upon 
love, isn't it? Every marriage built upon the foundation of a rock-solid love. Because without love, what is trust? What is faith? Love, again, remember, clearly defined as willing the, the good of the other above oneself. It is a self-sacrificial love. And so when the times and the storms of life hit us, it will be upon that love now that those vows will come into play. And you see this quite powerfully in that first reading, don't we? I think everybody in here with the pulse can, could identify with the prophet Habakkuk when he cries out. And everybody in here who has struggled with faith know these words well. So the prophet is preaching around the, around the year 6th century B.C., so nearly 2,600 years ago. And he's crying out to God because at this time period, what's happening here is that the Babylonian Empire is approaching the southern kingdom of Israel. So remember, the 12 tribes of Israel, they're separated into two kingdoms. There's the 10 in the north, and then the two in the south. And so Judah is the southern kingdom. The Babylonian Empire is encroaching. The Babylonian Empire, that's modern-day Iraq. So think of the Iraqis. They would be the successors of the Babylonians. And so the Babylonians are, are squeezing into the southern kingdom. Israelites are being killed, tortured, losing in battle because the Babylonians are one of the most ferocious empires at that time. Powerful, strong. And the Jews are dying. And they're crying out. And I'll listen to that in this context. How long, O Lord, I cry for help and you do not listen. I cry out to you violence and you do not intervene. Why do you let me see ruin? Why must I look at misery? Now again, I love this because it is the heart and the cry of every single person who takes the faith seriously. Because we cry out to God, God, I love you, I, I, I'm faithful to you. But you're silent. Now do you see why the apostles say increase our trust? You know, when you talk to atheists and you try to dialogue with people to share the gospel with them, one of the main arguments you hear constantly, especially for all of us here gathered as Christians, we have to have a ready answer for this because it's a great, great question. How do we handle the problem of evil? Because they'll tell us as Christians, say, hey, you Christian, you believe that your God is all-powerful. And we say, yes, absolutely, God is all-powerful. Okay? Okay, then you Christian, you also say that God is all-loving. And we nod and say, yes, indeed, God is all-loving. Okay, then, explain to me children suffering. How do we pose that question? Do we even answer it? Like today, we have a family in here, one of the mass intentions it's for a little boy named Eli, two-month-year-old baby, died of sepsis. Okay, then now you Christian, tell me how do you respond to that? If your God is all-loving and all-powerful. Great question, isn't it? Do you feel the force of that? See, how do we respond? 
the classic way of answering this, this dilemma, and I grant it, is it is not emotionally satisfying. It is not. It's not emotionally satisfying at all. It's very humbling, in fact. The way we have always answered this, this proposition is that we say that God permits suffering, not knowing, he permits it, so he allows the freedom of his creation to unfold. So he allows the freedom of Christian to unfold, and he permits these horrific acts that we all endure, the suffering of children, the suffering of, of all of us. He allows it to happen in order, now here's the key, to bring about a greater good somehow. See, the reason why it's not emotionally satisfying because we don't understand everything. Because it's very humbling. Because if you think about it, every single one of us, we have a small, small slice a slither of perspective of how the world works. Very small slice. And so this answer that the Christians always responds with to this dilemma is that somehow God will allow this horrific act, this evil, and through it in his providence and in his mystery will bring about a greater accomplishment. Again, do you see how that's not intellectually... Intellectually, we can follow the logic, but emotionally... It leaves us wanting. And here now lies why in every single church you will always see a crucified Jesus in our sanctuaries. You will always see, again, the, the body of Christ bloody and nailed and graphic on the cross. Why? It is because on the cross now, to help us penetrate this mystery, because I know it's a hard one, See, on the cross is the most horrific act in the universe. What we see on the cross of Jesus Christ, they're nailed, they're tortured. It is the most horrific, darkest act of humanity. Because what is it? If indeed Jesus is God, right? if Jesus is indeed God and he's taken on human flesh, he permits himself now to be tortured in the most vilest way by his very own creation. Us. He's allowed his own brothers and sisters to torture him. So he's allowed the most horrific act, because that very act is none other than deicide. It is the murder of God. The most horrific act ever. And that is what we see on every single cross and crucifix. But now here's the logic again. Follow this. My friends, what happens because of the cross now? Because of Jesus Christ's shedding of his blood, what now occurs? Our salvation. You and I now are saved because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Heaven is now thrust open. The most horrific act followed by the greatest accomplishment of God. You see, we must first realize that every single soul is worth more than the entire galaxy. Every single person, every single, our neighbor, our friends, our family members, even our enemies, every single perfect has profound dignity. And God now uses the very, his own very suffering, the most horrific act of humanity, to bring more souls back home to him. Do you see the beauty of the logic now? 
Our salvation, my friend. That is why St. Paul in a beautifully in the second reading says, endure the hardships of your lives for the sake of the gospel. Because your suffering and my suffering now in the grand mystery of his providence participates in the very salvation of more and more souls. It's hard. I know it. But that is why Jesus here says, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, trust, my friends. Trust. And when you doubt it, Look at the cross. Because the cross, my friends, is the greatest act of love you will ever encounter. And because of that love, how can we not trust Him? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.